0: The Apostle Paul stated in Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, that he did not want believers to be uninformed about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And yet, I think many of us do not have a good grasp on what the scriptures teach about them. We might be able to list and even have a conversation with someone on the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control, but when it comes to discussing the gifts of the Spirit, we often struggle. Prior to looking at the different spiritual gifts God gives to those who trust in Jesus, we really need to first look at what the Scriptures reveal about the Holy Spirit Himself. Because the Holy Spirit is often referred to in Scripture as a fire or a wind, Some people incorrectly believe that he is an impersonal force, merely a type of power that is controlled by God. Others suggest that the Holy Spirit is just another name for Jesus, referring to his spirit or soul apart from his physical body. But as we shall soon see, these ideas do not line up with what the Bible actually teaches about the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures reveal the Holy Spirit as being present and acting with the Father and the Son since before time began. In fact, in Genesis one verse twelve, it reveals that while the earth was still formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. He was present at the very beginning of all things and played a vital role in the creation of our world. The scriptures also reveal that he possesses all the same characteristics of God the Father. For example, he is omnipresent. In other words, he's in all places at the same time. In Psalm 139 verses 7 to 8, the psalmist asks God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, Paul reveals that like God the Father, the Holy Spirit is omniscient, meaning that he knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For just as a person's thoughts are known by their own spirit within them, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit was present and active throughout the Old Testament too. However, few people encountered him in the way that we as believers encounter him today. In those days, only the kings and prophets of Israel were filled with the Holy Spirit, who helped them to discern God's will and lead God's people. But since the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Holy Spirit has become available to all who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In fact, the Holy Spirit plays a very important part in our salvation. In his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus clearly taught that only those who have been born again by the Spirit of God can enter into God's kingdom. As we put our faith in Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, as we ask him to forgive our sin, we are given new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. The old passes away all things become new. And according to the Apostle Paul, in chapter 6 of First Corinthians, in fact, chapter 6, verse 19, our bodies then become temples of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell all who believe in Jesus. He moves in with all his stuff. All his attributes, all his power, all that wonderful fruit we talked about earlier in the lesson, he not only is with us, he is in us and all that he is and has is available to us. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul explains something else the Holy Spirit does when we believe in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, he writes, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I realize that that might be a bit confusing to some of us, but Paul was really using a part of everyday life at that time to explain God's working. In those days, wealthy people often wore rings that they would press into a circle of wax, creating a seal to mark items that belonged to them. For example, when they bought something from the marketplace They marked their purchase with their seal. It would then be ready to be collected or redeemed by the owner or the owner's servants at some future time. That seal was proof that the purchase price had been paid in full and the ownership of that item had already been transferred to them. From that moment, it was theirs. No one else could take it. And Paul says that that is what the Holy Spirit does for us. As we make the conscious choice to surrender our lives to God, we are placed into Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit and he marks us as those who belong to God, those who will be redeemed by our rightful owner when he returns in glory. But the seal of the Holy Spirit is far more important and more powerful than the seal on a market purchase might be. Jesus told his disciples that when he returned to heaven, the Holy Spirit would come to be actively involved in our lives. He would be our helper. He would not only teach us all things, but he would also remind us of everything Jesus had said while on earth, and he would help us bear witness to others about Christ. The entire New Testament shows him doing just that. For example, in Acts chapter 8 verse 29, the Holy Spirit directed Philip to go to an Ethiopian's chariot and stay near it. It was an unusual instruction, but it literally put Philip in the perfect place to answer the official's questions about God and lead him to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. In Acts 13, the church in Antioch was worshipping the Lord when the Holy Spirit told them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them and following his instruction, these two disciples then set out on what would become known as Paul's first missionary journey, taking the gospel to faraway places. There were, however, also times when the Holy Spirit prevented Paul from preaching the word in some areas. Act 16 tells us that when he and his companions tried to enter a region called Bithynia, the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to and directed them to their next mission field in Macedonia instead. Now, if you read that section in Acts 16, you'll learn that following the Spirit's direction in that instance ultimately led to many people being saved, as well as the planting of a very significant church in the city of Philippi. It also marked the westward turn of the gospel, eventually bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to what we now know as Europe. Not only did Paul closely follow the Holy Spirit's direction as to the places he traveled, he very evidently also relied on the Spirit for the content of his teaching, telling those in the city of Corinth, for example, that everything he taught had first been taught to him by the Holy Spirit. He revealed in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, that he spoke not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. That chapter further explains that the Holy Spirit reveals God's wisdom for, and I quote, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own Spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. In Acts 15, we see that the church leadership in Jerusalem also listened to and followed the Holy Spirit's direction, particularly with regard to the matter of including Gentiles in the church. This was a major question in the early church, which up until that point had been made up mainly of believers from a Jewish background. But the leaders prayerfully sought the Holy Spirit's leadership, asked for his wisdom, and then did what he directed. And as a result, the church expanded throughout the known world. As the disciples experienced all these things, they must have been reminded of what Jesus had said to them about his death in John chapter 16, verses 7 to 15. He spoke to them about what the Spirit would then do. He said, "'Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away.' Because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when He, the Spirit of Truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Jesus not only speaks of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Truth, He reveals that He is our advocate, our supporter, our encourager, our helper and that he could not come until Christ had returned to the Father. But when he came, the Holy Spirit would powerfully work in the lives of those who put their faith in Christ Jesus and his sacrifice. And Jesus reveals here that the Holy Spirit doesn't just work in and among the believers, he also works in the world at large, convicting people of their sin and their desperate need for someone to save them from God's righteous judgment. He is the one who guides people into a true understanding of Jesus, God the Son, as well as an understanding of God the Father. And this brings up one of the hardest things to understand about the God we love and worship, and that is the concept of the Trinity, Notice how Jesus mentions God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as three separate actors. Now, what does that mean? Christians believe that there is only one God, but that he reveals himself in three distinct persons, which we refer to as the Trinity, The word Trinity itself isn't found in the Bible, rather it's a theological term men have used to try to express this threefold nature of the one true God. However, Scripture itself reveals their names, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit we've seen these three persons in christ's own words there in john 16 but we also see them at the baptism of jesus mark chapter 1 verses 10 to 11 tells us that jesus came up from the water The Spirit descended on him like a dove, while the voice of the Father was heard from heaven, saying that he is pleased with his beloved Son. All three persons are present, and all three are involved in what is happening. The whole idea of the Trinity is something that is very difficult for our minds to grasp. But there is one important thing we should remember whenever we think about the Trinity. Our God is and always has been a God of relationship. This is something at the very core of his nature. Though he is the only true God, one in his being, he exists in a relationship of love that we can neither fully describe Nor understand. The Father loves the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son. The Son loves the Father and the Holy Spirit. They are one in their very nature and do not exist apart from each other, though they are described as having different roles in the way that they interact with us. And we must leave all things there. The Bible gives us many other indications that the Holy Spirit is both a person and an equal member of the Godhead. Perhaps one of the most convincing statements in the Bible about the Holy Spirit's nature is found in Acts chapter 5. At a time when many believers were selling what they had to help those in the church who were in great need, Luke reveals that a certain church member by the name of Ananias lied about the sale of a piece of property. Look at Acts 5 verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. We're not told why this couple sold their land, and certainly they were not forced to give any of the money they realized to the church. However, an earlier chapter reveals that others had also sold their possessions and given everything they had in order to support the work of God and the Lord's people. So it seems that Ananias and Sapphira may have been trying to compete With the generosity displayed by others. Whatever their motive, Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to secretly keep back part of the proceeds of the land for themselves while pretending that they were giving all to the church as others had done. But their actions did not remain hidden. Look at verse 3. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Peter confronted Ananias. He knew that Ananias had allowed Satan to fill his heart and that he was lying about the price of the land. Peter also pointed out that the land and the money from the sale had belonged to Ananias to be used in whatever way he chose for no one had forced him to make this gesture. The issue was not that he had held part of the sale price back. The issue was that Ananias had chosen to lie about it. And note Peter's words, Ananias had not lied just to men. In verse 3, he says Ananias had lied to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, he says he had lied to God. These words are significant because they reveal the true nature of the Holy Spirit. As stated earlier, there are those who mistakenly think of the Holy Spirit as merely being the power of God, that is sometimes expressed as a wind or a fire, but you cannot lie to the wind, you cannot lie to a fire, you cannot lie to a force or a power, you can only lie to a person. The Holy Spirit is not merely the power of God. No, he is a person, and as part of the Trinity, he is God himself. What we do to him, we do to God. In his letters, Paul has more to say about relating to the Holy Spirit. He writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, warning us to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. The writer of the book of Hebrews goes even further, asserting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 29, that it is actually possible to insult the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Any one who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? If we have received the knowledge of Christ's sacrifice and yet we deliberately choose to reject him, we insult the Holy Spirit. Think about what it means to insult someone. An insult is so offensive because it's deeply personal. It's an attack on the nature and character of another being. And scripture says that is what we do to the Holy Spirit when we deliberately choose to reject him and though we don't want to consider it it is possible for a person to so disrespect the holy spirit that it crosses the line into blasphemy jesus himself spoke about this in mark chapter 3 verses 22 to 30 Some Pharisees and religious leaders actually accused Jesus of being Satan and performing miracles by the power of demons. At this, Jesus warned them in verse 28, "'Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty.' Of an eternal sin. Now, I want to talk about this for a moment because I remember being so concerned by this passage as a new believer, worrying if I could ever be guilty of that. It caused me considerable concern until a missionary friend pointed out that we can understand from this text that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit occurs when a person consciously and deliberately refuses to acknowledge Christ as God, despite all that they know of him. The religious leaders in Mark's gospel knew so much about Jesus. They'd heard him speak and seen him act, and yet They refused to accept that his power was from God. My missionary friend pointed out that as a believer in Jesus, living with him as Lord of my life, it was the first part of that verse that applied to me. I could be forgiven all my sins and every slander I'd ever uttered because I'd accepted Jesus Christ for who he is, the one true Son of God, I was certainly not guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, there were then and are many today whose hearts are hardened against the love and forgiveness that Christ freely offers to all who come to him. They deliberately choose to turn away, shutting themselves off from the only remedy for their sin and the consequences will be eternal. The tragedy is that it doesn't have to be that way, especially as we understand all that the Holy Spirit does for us. Did you know that he's constantly praying for us? Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. How wonderful to know that even when I am at a loss for words, the Holy Spirit himself is praying for me through wordless groans and that all his requests are in complete accordance With God's will for me. And in that same chapter, in verses 15 through 17, Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit sets us free from our past and makes us God's children, giving us the right to actually call Him Father. He writes The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. in order that we may also share in his glory. Notice these verses do not promise us a trouble-free life, but they do confirm that the Holy Spirit makes us sons and heirs of the living God. He makes it possible for us to call God our Father. We do not have to live in unbelief or in despair. There is help for us in this life and glory in the world to come. My prayer today is that you have come to know a bit more about this most precious gift, the Holy Spirit, that he is not an impersonal thing, but rather he is the third person of the Trinity who lives in you as your comforter, counselor, and friend, just as Jesus promised he would. And we have so much more to learn about him The work of the Holy Spirit is vital in the life of the believer, and that is most clearly seen in the fact that he gives gifts to each one of us who follows Jesus Christ. However, these gifts of the Spirit are not ours to simply enjoy or use for our own benefit, but rather they equip us to live and work together in the body of Christ, extending his kingdom and bringing glory to his name alone. Now, next time, we'll be looking in greater depth at the difference between being marked with the Spirit as we've talked about today and being truly filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So let me encourage you not to miss our next lesson. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.